Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, away at the meeting and uh, not preparing sermons, so we have a treat tonight. Our very own sister, Jennifer Thomas, uh, is going to preach tonight. Uh, if you didn't know, Jennifer is a student at Regent College and uh, working on her Master's of Divinity. Um, she is uh, a lover of Jesus and one of us, so let's uh, give her a warm welcome as she comes to preach. Thanks for being here, as Chris said, on this beautiful night. Um, if I'd known it was going to be this hot, maybe I would have taken you up on that and worn my bikini. <laughs> if you weren't here two weeks ago, that won't make any sense, and that's okay. Um, as Chris said, I'm studying at Regent College, and uh, this topic tonight might be a little out of the ordinary, and we're going to kind of take a break from the First Corinthians uh, series for tonight. Uh, I've had the privilege this term of doing a seminar on science and faith in the 21st century. So when Chris asked me to preach, my quick acceptance didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was uh, supposed to write on that topic anyway. <laughs> um, let's pray real quick. God of all truth, guide us into your truth. Through your Holy Spirit, may these words enter our hearts. May we know you as you wish to be known. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, recently over spring break, uh, I introduced my two younger kids to E.T., the movie. If you were alive in the 80s and probably after that, you probably already know the plot. But an extraterrestrial misses his spaceship ride home. Left behind on Earth, he encounters and is befriended by the young boy, Elliot, who is initially quite frightened but gets to know this this. Uh, unusual being. However, their encounters are always shadowed by this foreboding, anonymous, what turn out to be government scientists. They want to study, document, and classify E.T. And uh, in sort of a very mild version of the horror genre, Spielberg uses these shots where you just see the feet you just see a person. You don't know who they are yet. But when they do burst on the scene, they enclose Elliot's house in a white tent. They lock everything down. Nobody can go anywhere. And then they put E.T. inside the big uh, oxygen tent, and they want to scan him. There are lights and sensors and numbers. There's beeping. They want to find out what's in his DNA. They need to get to know this incredible anomaly, a being from outer space. Elliot knows E.T. too, but in a totally different way. Elliot's knowledge is through this encounter that he's had. And it's so personal that eventually his very being even becomes entwined with E.T.'s, such that when E.T. begins to suffer because he's too far from home, Elliot sickens as well. So the view of science that the movie gives us, I realized as I watched with my kids, is quite negative. They're the bad guys. We're a little afraid. Mommy, it's getting scary of these people. I think that it's very telling because our cultural moment is marked by a lot of ambivalence about the pursuit of science. On the one hand, we give it these almost godlike powers, right? We turn to science to settle arguments. We point to a headline that says, <clears throat> I told you, Women need more sleep. Or, I drink red wine for the heart benefits. 
or one of my favorites, see, messy people are more creative. <laughs> right? But we, to back us up, what do we want? We want an evidence. We want to study. But we're also a little bit suspicious, as the movie shows. We worry that these hard, impersonal claims science makes might erode what's most valuable about human life. It might reduce meaning and beauty to just numbers on a machine. Sometimes we worry that maybe science is kind of in the back pocket of big industry and profits, maybe not quite telling us the truth about their data. Or perhaps most profoundly, we worry that our increasing technological ability is only accelerating our ability to abuse the earth, oppress other creatures, maybe even destroy ourselves. We just marked the anniversary of the dropping of the most powerful weapon we've yet created. That's a real concern. Among Christians, I find, there's a special sort of suspicion. We fear that science is somehow locked forever in conflict with Christian faith, that at its heart, there's this godless worldview that just excludes God as any kind of potential explanation, that certain very loud proponents of that kind of worldview are committed to actively using science to undermine the teachings of our faith. And maybe there's a concern that science might represent an overly arrogant assertion of the power of human reason to do what only God or faith or the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. We're very ambivalent. It hasn't always been this way, though, and so this state of affairs makes me sad, and, and many of those who give, are, are Christians who've given their life to the pursuit of science are very saddened by it. The fact is, many of the greats of science through the centuries have been the most committed Christians. This is from Johannes Kepler, who discovered that planets move in elliptical, not circular orbits. He wrote, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, of the glory of God. And that's how many of the greats that you've heard of thought of themselves. Priests of God reading the book of nature, which along with the scriptures God had given to reveal himself. So Newton, Galileo, and Copernicus were all deep believers. Michael Faraday, the father of electromagnetic theory. Lisa Meitner, an Austrian physicist who partnered in the discovery of nuclear fission, was passed over for a Nobel Prize. And the list will just go on and on and on. So perhaps you're thinking, I came for this today. That's fine. I'm not a scientist. I'm not likely to become one. This is too technical, too difficult. I'd rather just leave it to the experts. Who has the brains to understand what particle physicists are going on about anyway? My encounter with God is personal. I have faith, and that's all I really need. Part of that is the exact reason I wanted to talk about this today. I think many of us find the actual work scientists do difficult and confusing and technical and therefore hard to appreciate. I think a lot of us have a little bit of a wrong idea about what science really is, or at least what it ought to be. And as a result, I suspect that we silently concur with the misconception our culture elevates that a scientific standard of proof 
is the only acceptable way to establish something. I think maybe there's a little piece of us that feels inadequate about the basis of our faith commitments when asked, well, what evidence do you have for that? Our modern age tells us this lie that our belief in Jesus is irrational, a private matter, doesn't stand up to scrutiny, shouldn't be brought out in public, so we just say, okay, I'll just kind of tuck it away. For instance, I'll confess an unfortunate habit, maybe some of you share it, who likes to read articles on the internet, who's been told, never read the comments, who reads the comments anyway. Yep. I was reading a really funny satire piece on April Fool's uh, from a regent professor, and even though it wasn't really on topic at all, he got a comment along these lines, quite a gem. The guy wrote, give me any proof, using ample capitalization, any evidence not simply found in ancient writings that gods or anything supernatural actually exists. I adjust my opinions and conclusions if new facts, evidence, and probable conclusions emerge, as do all rational, reasonable, critical-minded thinkers. So obviously, since there exist rational and reasonable and critical-minded thinkers like our friend who have not unanimously felt compelled by cold, hard logic to become Christians, the whole worldview must be bankrupt, there's no evidence or facts to be had, and it all falls out. I'd like to take a little bit of a different angle in what we do today. Leaving aside particulars of some of the specific claims that maybe cause us tension, how we might think about those in light of our faith, although I have a series of outlines I did for my class, so if you want to talk about that, let's have a class and do it. I'd like to look at how it is that we know much of anything about anything. I think when we look at that, we'll find out that science and its quest for truth and our faith in Jesus have a lot in common. In fact, there's a level at which Christian teaching is like a good scientific theory. And we don't need to be anxious about our level of uncertainty. Let's look at our text. Please rise. We're in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's on page 1,228, although I'm reading from a slightly different version. The beginning of John's first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Can you see when we first read that, we might not immediately pick up that there's a context of a struggle over some heretical doctrines in the church. Because for us, the language that first jumps out is the sense perception. We can identify with that, right? What we saw, what we touched, what we heard, we testify to. At first glance, it might seem that John is saying, along with our friend from the comments section, that seeing is believing. <laughs> 
So strictly understood, this proverb declares that only a personal experience with your senses is an adequate basis for believing that something is true. Now, if that were true, we'd all be sunk, right? Because we believe a lot of things that we haven't personally experienced. More generally, I think, in our culture, this operates as a claim that you must have some sort of empirical data. And of course, in many cases, we accept that other people have gone out and gotten that data. Seeing as believing has a long history. I found that it first appeared in 1639 in a publication of English and Latin proverbs. That's way before what we usually think of as the Enlightenment, where everyone discovered that you know, we had to go look for ourselves. But it's approximately the lifetime of Francis Bacon, whom we call the father of the scientific method. Bacon insisted that when it came to looking for truth, you had to really strip your mind of all preconceived ideas. Your, what your culture told you, what the church told you, what your education might have told you. In fact, he called them idols. You have to get rid of the idols. Then you have to go look at what really is, what's really out there, what's really happening. And then he said, when we have that data, we can generalize and come to axioms, truth claims. So that's what most people think of, right, when you think of how scientists do it. It's objective, no preconceived ideas, logical, just data, generalized, and empirical. You can only go look at what is there publicly available, physical, and observable. Of course, it would stretch our text way too far to imagine that John was thinking of proving Jesus' incarnation or resurrection in anything like a modern or scientific sense. I think I'm glad they didn't have those tools available. Would the chemical composition of Jesus' resurrected body have told us anything more than what we know from the Gospels? Would it have told us anything we needed to know? Not sure. But nevertheless, John's language, seeing, hearing, touching with our hands, is clearly meant to be more than metaphorical. It's meant to be eyewitness testimony. And it is deeply consistent with the basic approach to truth that we have in the Christian faith. See, Christianity is not just a nice idea that someone arrived at by sitting around and thinking really hard about it. The church has always pointed back. We tell stories. We do in Sunday school. We tell stories because our belief is that something happened, a real event in space and time. And our basic orientation, something that we share with science in its quest for truth, is that this world we're in, what we're experiencing right now, is the real world. So if we're following Jesus in the real world, this is it. This is what you've got to work with. There's a direct connection between these Christian, Christian beliefs about God and creation and our ability to know anything at all using the scientific method. So let's follow this out for a minute. Basically, three options. If, like most pagan or pantheistic-type cultures throughout the world, you think God basically is nature, that stream, that mountain, that cloud represents somehow aspects of God to you. You don't really expect predictability. In fact, the things that perplex you about nature are easily explained. Why did the volcano erupt? Pele felt like it. Right? This is, and moreover, you probably don't want to go poking around to see 
if you can experiment on nature and figure out if you can make it do something because that might not make the god very happy. So you pretty much just leave it alone. If, like the Greeks, let's say Plato and those after him, you decide that true reality is immaterial, the real stuff is spirit or mind, it's abstract, eternal perfection, and therefore all this material stuff is just an imperfect copy, and the fact that my hair happens to be brown is an accident, literally an imperfection, okay? Um, you certainly don't go study material things to arrive at truth. You use your reason. You think about abstractions. You kind of can do it from your armchair or from the stoa with the other philosophers. But if, as in Hebrew and Christian scriptures, if, as we do, you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you come to different conclusions. So you know now that the world is not the same as God. God creates this thing that is separate from God's self. But it is God's creation. And there are important conclusions that follow from that. For instance, you might believe the world is rational and orderly because that reflects the character of the God who made it. In fact, um, this tradition, according to John, in the Gospels and the letters, assigns to Jesus this title, The Word, and in Greek, that's the logos. And it's so much more than what we mean by just word. It's like a whole concept, an idea, a, um, a sense of order. It's the root of our words logic and syllogism and every ology you've ever heard of. He's right in there. So it's, why do, you, why do we expect science, uh, nature to keep behaving today the way it did yesterday? We believe that God is faithful and gave it order. The second conclusion you might come to is that matter actually matters. Unlike Plato thought that if there was sort of something sort of like a creator, he kind of had to shape what was given to him. We decide that God created freely. No one told God what to do. There's no overarching logical plan that he had to follow. Like an artist wonderful creation we experience is what he wanted it to be. Okay, so how can we know about it? Well, we certainly can't sit down and try to think out what was his plan from the beginning. Well, the only way to know about it is to go and see. The matter matters, so you're going to have to go see and hear and touch it. The knowledge we get from this will necessarily be limited and partial because we can't begin to access everything that God thought, but it is the best we've got and it's real. And then third, and this is the one that's really blown my mind, because we don't often think about this, but we might believe there's a reason the structure of our minds corresponds to what's really there. Like, why can we think rationally and figure out how to interpret data from astronomical signals and understand what those mean? I mean why does math even work as a way of describing the universe. We came up with these symbols, right? A and B and squared, and like, we invented that, but somehow it very powerfully describes reality. So that image of God's rationality is in us as well, giving a fit between us and the world we encounter. 
And again, we just assume that because it's the condition we live in, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, a cow doesn't think about you know, the trajectory between it and the fence. We're, we've been given an amazing ability to have insight. So there's a good historical argument to be made. I won't say it's a drop-dead argument, but a good historical argument that the very roots of modern science as we know it come out of these Christian convictions and Christian faith. The church has given us over the years these two wonderful mottos in Latin, so I really get to geek out over that. Credo ut intelligam, I believe so that I can understand. And another, fides, there's that faith word, fides quirens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. It turns out that contrary to what a lot of the chatter you hear out there would have you think, science too begins with these articles of faith that it cannot prove. To do her work at all, a scientist has to have confidence, and there's fides right in the middle of that word. Confidence that the world is real, that our minds can form true statements about reality, that there's this underlying order which it's possible for us to discover, and that what has happened in the past is a good guide to the future. So if you're the author of 1 John, what does this mean? I mentioned this text is addressing teachers whose false doctrine and these sort of claims to an exclusive fellowship threaten to draw believers away from this truth about who Jesus really is. So when John plunges in, plunges right in. To address this heresy, he's not going to argue about philosophical abstractions, but point back to the story as we know it because matter matters. This is who we, what we saw. This is who Jesus was in our presence. It's an interesting twist that Christian heresies are often more logically consistent than the orthodox doctrine. C.S. Lewis called Arianism a sensible, synthetic religion. You could piece it together if you started with the right assumptions. But over the years, those are all theories that the church has discarded as not meeting important criteria. In this case, John says, not fully accounting for the data of what the church had actually experienced. So this raises the question, how did early Christians arrive at the truths we now teach? That Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, he has two natures. What is life meant? That somehow his life and death rescues us from our condition by the same process that underlies everything we know. It's the interplay between the data and the theory, experience and reflection. The problem with the really strict Francis Bacon idea is that data don't actually lead logically to theories. It's not completely self-evident. You have to make a jump. You have to bring who you are, all your insight, your creativity, your reflection. In fact, the first necessary skill in science is even getting the right data, asking the right question. If you have ever helped a child with a project for the school science fair, then you know this all too well. You have to know something just to know what it is that you don't know. And when you've heard those dubious half-baked proposals from your kids, you want to go, but it's not going to work because, no, you don't know that. <laughs> Besides how we form questions, context matters. What questions we bring matters. 
what we think is important, what we go looking for. Some astronomers evidently like to say, I wouldn't have seen it if I didn't believe it. So we have another idiom, besides seeing as believing in English, that betrays this awareness we have that we do not consider all our sense perceptions to be absolute indicators of truth. We say, I can't believe my eyes. We might use this explanation when something is so surprising that it's absolutely unbelievable. Perhaps ironically, my 14-year-old is out of bed at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I can't believe my eyes. Maybe we use it when something is so surprisingly good that it, we know it's true, but we can't really get it into our heart or mind. I know this is happening, but my heart can't quite believe it. The thing is, our theory or our beliefs about the world that we come with affect what impressions or data we're willing to accept. So if we experience something particularly jarring, particularly conflicting with our prior framework, we're going to say, I can't believe my eyes. And the first thing we might do is double check the reliability of our senses. So if you know you only got three hours of sleep, that would be me, if you know you're taking a substance known to be hallucinogenic, if you know that your kid brother is prone to playing practical jokes, you might have a really good reason to suspect the evidence of your eyes. But if you double check everything and yeah, you're awake and you're sober and everything holds up to scrutiny, then you might have to accept the evidence and double check your expectations or your assumptions about reality. That's the process we can see happening in the gospel text from Luke. Jesus shows up in the room with them. The disciples' first conclusion is, we must be seeing a ghost. That's the only thing their reality structure has room for. The perplexity and disorientation that they experience is in fact typical of almost all the resurrection accounts that we've looked at during this Easter season. There was an event that did not fit their expectations. They didn't even have a category for it. Over and over we find that the accounts have mistaken assumptions, disbelief at first, or this sort of jaw-dropping marvel without really understanding. In fact, when the women come back from the tomb and say, He is risen! Many of the disciples just write them off. First, you're women talking, and second, that's not possible. Go back to bed. Peter, at least, gets up and goes to the tomb. He will see for himself. But he still doesn't quite get it. And the accounts kind of differ in their details. Have you ever tried to really harmonize them? It's tricky. They have the striking character of raw data, a report from the field, eyewitness testimony, unharmonized, just this is what I remember seeing. At this point in our the churches, the fledgling churches, understanding, those texts show very little interpretation. They don't say, there was Jesus in his resurrection body, and wow, am I glad that he showed me because we're going to look like that someday. They don't go there at all. They don't understand how to fit it all together yet because this is an event so mind-blowing, it requires them to rethink their whole existing paradigm. It's time for a new theory. And so in Luke such gentle compassion. Jesus does two things. First, he allows them to do the double check. 
Explore further. Confirm what your senses are telling. Here, touch. Go ahead. You got something to eat? I can eat. See, a ghost doesn't eat. Right? Okay, we got that covered. But there's more. That's not really enough. Notice after that, they still disbelieve for joy. They can't believe their eyes. They can't make sense of it. So the second part of Jesus' response is he shows them how it fits. He takes them through the scriptures, which they already embrace, and shows them how that's what they've been talking about all along. He begins to build a framework within which they can contain this experience. What we see happening there is just the beginning of a very long process of understanding. In the first John text, we see further evidence of the church reaching to understand this thing. So John, you'll notice, just slides easily between these claims of first-person testimony and conclusions he couldn't possibly have directly witnessed, like calling Jesus the word of eternal life who was with the beginning, who was with the Father, there's the beginning of some understanding developing. So if the early Christians knew one thing, as good Jewish people, it's that God is one. But they had Jesus looking like God, talking like God, and doing things only God could do. So that tension took some time to understand. At one point, physicists found themselves in a quandary in which light looked like a particle, but wait, it acted like a wave. That tension took probably several decades of discomfort before a theory came around that could give some insight. It would take the church about 400 years of considered and creative and spirit-guided reflection to conclude that the best way to understand these events was to say, God is a unity of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that understanding, God as the three-in-one, God as essentially being that's in relationship, kind of has the status of a fundamental theory for us. Not a theory like a crackpot theory that somebody kind of threw out yesterday, but a theory that makes sense of everything, and it brings fruitful results in every kind of branch of theological reflection that we look at. We shouldn't be afraid to use that word theory, right? It just means our understanding based on experience. And this is a good theory, a solid theory that survived all the discarded ones and has stood the test of time. We might almost say that the theory makes predictions. It might be going out on a limb, but If you believe that the essence of God is relationality, you might even expect to see something about that reflected in the nature of reality itself. One of the things we looked at in our class is some of the eerily mysterious things quantum physics is showing us, that one particle that has interacted with another particle can continue to be connected to each other in terms of their measurable properties, no matter how far apart they get. That it's, it's eerie stuff that makes even scientists go, woo, 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 woo. But there's something relational at the very heart of reality. It's great food for thought. So if this incarnation, death, resurrection of Christ, this story of God's self-revealing is something 
that we experience and not something we could have anticipated, concluded on our own, or ever proven. Not a logical necessity, but as John says, the life was manifested. That leads us to another wonderful truth. It shows us how much God wants to be known. God has given us creation, yes, and it's true that when we look, whether on a huge macro scale or a tiny micro scale, we can see wonders and we can be in awe. But as Paul says in Romans, from looking at creation alone, we understand God's eternal power and his divine nature. We don't really grasp his attributes. There was a very active project in the 19th century that tried to build from creation at the ground level to God, and it wasn't very successful. What we needed is that God has specifically acted in history, revealed things to us that we couldn't have known any other way. From Jesus, we know God's relationality, God's mercy, self-giving and abundant love. And God chose to draw us near and to reconcile all things to himself, not through some kind of individual, zap, personal illumination into each of our brains, but through this objective action in history. And that brings us into fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's really good news. Finally, I'd like to suggest that our text from 1 John suggests to us that our experiences of faith matter profoundly. It's really easy to see the Bible events, that great revelation story I've just referred to, as important. But have you considered that the data of your experience with God is also of great significance? How has God worked in your life? What have you heard and seen Early evangelicals were fond of often remarking that Christianity is an experimental faith, they'd say. It has to be tried out. Uh, G.K. Chesterton famously said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. It's true. Over and over again, this story in the Bible urges us to step out and experience for ourselves what God has in store. Oh, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. As I say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Of course, there's a difference in our personal experience from that kind of publicly available data that I talked about. It is individual, right? It is not available for public inspection, and that's why we're tempted to just sort of you know, hide and want to say, yeah, I guess it is just my subjective experience, just my story. But we do have the possibility to share it with one another. That is, we could, like a good scientist, publish our findings. The study is never complete until you share what you've learned. And the author of 1 John is very like a scientist in this regard. Um, scholars puzzle over this line, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, some people think, and some manuscripts even say it should be your joy, right? It's the, it's the reader's joy that will be complete when they know all the truth about Jesus. No, I don't think so. I think the harder reading is correct. 
John is saying, when I can share with you what I've experienced so we can know together, I will have joy. There's a very long and solid tradition in the evangelical world of uh, giving your testimony. We've probably heard at least one person and maybe dozens give a testimony. And I suspect that over time, we've kind of fallen into a habit where to give a testimony is kind of almost a genre. Like a fairy tale begins with once upon a time, a testimony has to start with, I was so bad. There's a structure to it. You have to say how awful you were, the time Jesus saved you, how much joy you have now. It became a bit scripted. If you talk to enough people, at some point you'll find confusion or frustration or a sense of disappointment or maybe not measuring up because their story doesn't seem to fit that pattern that we've all heard. It's kind of that well-worn groove over the last couple centuries. It doesn't have to be that way. We need to take seriously the story of our own life. But of course, all such sharing feels risky. For one thing, we don't want to be overly confident of our own experiences. We know it's possible to be self-deceived. We may be quite aware that we're conditioned and biased by our certain experiences. We may not even really understand yet what it is that happened to us. It's still kind of raw. But we can't and shouldn't discount that reality or our own attempts to interpret it. If we're not to be stuck in the narrowness of personal interpretation based only on our limited and individual experience, we must listen well to each other. To do that, we might have to let go of an idol of absolute certainty. That idea that we got from our wrong idea about science, that everything would be just exactly one way and it would be proven and it would be clear. When we realize that we're all on a journey from experience, interpretation, and experience again, we can make space for that fellowship John talks about to take place. For each one to feel safe and valued as we speak forth what is intimate and true about our spiritual walk. What would it look like if we shared our data openly with each other? What would it look like if we regularly helped one another to discern what God might be up to in our lives? What if we were open to have our, having our assumptions questioned or even corrected? by someone who sees things from another angle. I find that my operating theories sometimes change over time. For instance, when I was younger, a church I belonged to taught implicitly or explicitly that if God felt distant, if your experience in faith felt unsatisfactory, it was because we weren't trying hard enough. We must not be praying enough, fasting enough, renouncing enough, wanting it bad enough. And I have felt release and peace from comparing notes with others. Um, especially, uh, I, I love this one particular blogger, Heather Caleri, who says this, the catch-22 of trying to feel harder to rest, to rest in Jesus, as he says, felt like a sick joke. I thought something was wrong with me. And then something changed. I came to the end of my rope and gave up trying altogether. Honestly, it was terrifying. And the journey set me free. 
She talks about the amazing joy she's found in this way of following Jesus. I need that. I need to compare notes. Maybe I can discard a theory that wasn't working. Try something else. So the way that Elliot knows in E.T. of personal encounter certainly resonates deeply with us. Knowing God is personal, and it is experimental, and it certainly isn't about measuring and reducing and analyzing, but rather seeing and hearing and touching and sharing those experiences with a community you love and trust. But I'm also hoping to inspire us to see through this image that floats around of the cold and power-hungry and unbelieving scientist. The fact is that whether they're church people or not, the true scientists almost always are people who respond to the world with awe and delight. Their curiosity, their delight in the world is quite infectious. Lisa Meitner, whom I referred to earlier, wrote, science makes people reach selflessly for truth and objectivity. It teaches people to accept reality with wonder and admiration, not to mention the deep awe and joy that the natural order of things brings to the true scientist. Once we feared that the more we explained, the less there would be to wonder at. But the opposite has been the case. Beneath each new level of reality, we have discovered still greater complexities, whatever direction we go, and more mysteries that we do not yet understand. I brought a picture. Joe will show us. Yeah. This is from the Hubble telescope. It's called the, an ultra-deep field image, which is to say that to produce this, astronomers aimed their telescope at a tiny patch of sky, trying to avoid the visible stars just the tiniest slice, and in that slice alone, with this most powerful instrument, we've picked up around 5,500 galaxies, and each of those has millions of stars in it. I just, it's so beautiful, it blows my mind. Even for an unbeliever, those images and that sense of vastness inspires this profound sense of awe, but for us, it calls us to respond in worship. We know whose creation we are privileged to view. As Chris read in Psalm 8, When I consider the heavens the work of your hands, what is mankind that you are mindful of us? It seems to be even more true the more we learn. In our Christian walk, we will not always get it right. And we can be okay with that. We humbly recognize that our knowledge and our experience, whether of creation or its maker, will always be limited and incomplete. To peek ahead in our series, we know in part. We see as through a glass darkly. Doesn't mean we give up on the search. Sometimes we get tunnel vision. We think that only the worthwhile way to spend a life in God's service might be evangelism or some kind of ministry, at the very least doing something practical to serve others and relieve their burdens. Of course, since you've been here for a long time, you've heard us talk about how God affirms every one of our vocations. I want to affirm how good and honorable it is for every single one of us to the best of our ability, and especially those who are called to it as their life's work, to cultivate the life of the mind. Ask questions. Appreciate the what is. Go and see. Look under rocks with your kids. How else will we fulfill the commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. 
And on the other hand, the knowledge itself is not an end. Our search for truth is barren if it does not lead us to bow in worship before the God of all truth. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and the one whom they sent. The thought of thousands of galaxies and billions of stars inspires awe. The bare fact that we have the capacity to probe such a vast and minutely complex universe is a wonder, and yet the greatest astonishment of all is that God would reach out, make God's self known to us, experiencing and knowing and sharing this reality is our most profound joy. Would you pray with me? Three in one God, you alone are wise. Most days we take for granted the fact that we can understand anything at all, but that we can is sheer grace. Thank you for nimble minds that are both rational and intuitive. We ask that we may always use them well. Seeking truth, enjoying you, delighting in your good gift. We confess that we are prone to make an idol of certainty. Forgive us. We are finite. We are fearful. We are often perplexed. You are not threatened by our questions, even our doubts. Thank you. Spirit, companion us on this journey of faith. Although we know only in part and we see less clearly than we wish, give us a true experience of your goodness in the land of the living. Someday we will know truly. Someday we believe our perplexities will melt away when we see you face to face. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Amen.